Once again, we're back to online-only worship. I want to make sure you understand um, why. Not only are the COVID cases rising in Butler County and really uh, over most of the country, but um, my whole family uh, has been exposed, and so we've been in quarantine this week and will be for much of next week. 
We've had a number of other individuals from real life who have tested positive or have been exposed to those who have. And, and some of those folks, um, thankfully, nobody that I'm aware of has had to be hospitalized yet. But some of those folks have had a little more um, moderate symptoms and have, have kind of struggled. Um, and so certainly want to be remembering them and praying for them. We just thought with the situation going on with half the band out for another week, um, that maybe it would be a good idea for us just to move to online only for the next three Sundays. So today, next Sunday, the 22nd, and then also the 29th. And then our goal is to be back into our building on December the 6th to kick off our Christmas series, um, God with us. And so I'm excited to be back with you in person and hopefully have the whole band and everybody be well and, and ready to celebrate the Christmas season. We also want to give you the opportunity uh, to give and continue to do that. You have been so generous and so great uh, all year as we faced this um, difficult situation, difficult time, and, and not really knowing what the future was going to hold. You have been so faithful and so committed to giving. I wanted to be able to tell you what your generosity has allowed us to do. This last week, we mailed out seven cards to seven different family members within the church who we'd heard through the grapevine at different times may have be, be struggling financially. And so we were able to give uh, gift cards to each of those families uh, to help them through this Thanksgiving time just as an opportunity to, to bless them and, and make things a little more easier, perhaps, um, uh, during this time when you know, everybody wants to be able to provide good Thanksgiving meals. And so um, thank you for giving so that we've been able to continue to be generous um, to those in need. If you would like to give today, you can do so by clicking the orange Give icon in the bottom right-hand corner on any web page uh, on our website or on your mobile device. You can also mail it to the address below here on the screen, or you can find that address at the bottom of every uh, web page um, on our website as well. Uh, however you give, thank you for giving so that we can be generous and bless others within the church and the greater community. Let's pray not only for the gifts that you're going to give to God, but also for those who've been struggling this last week, the last couple weeks with COVID. God, we thank you for loving us and being with us. We thank you for the generosity of so many people at Real Life who've continued to give even in these uncertain times so that we can be generous to those who are in need. Um, and God, we just pray that you would allow us to continue to be generous as you bless us and as you're with us in every situation that we face. God, we ask that you would be um, present in the lives and the hearts of those who are struggling with COVID, have been exposed and uh, had to be quarantined and be cut off from people, certainly from those, God, who have tested positive and who have been having symptoms and struggling uh, physically through this time. Would you bring healing and would you bring health to each and every person? We thank you that so many of our people um, have, have not had COVID or had very mild symptom, symptoms up to this point. Thank you, God, for being with us. Continue to do that as we serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, all. It's come to a time for communion. So go and grab some bread or crackers or water, whatever you may use to uh, take a moment just to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice uh, that he did for our sins. 
Um, in this crazy time, there's um, a lot of people arguing uh, whether to wear a mask, not to wear a mask, um, a lot of the politics that's going on. And sometimes we just kind of get wrapped up in that and don't look at the human side of things. Um, we're all human. We all have varying opinions. That's what makes us different. And that's what makes things interesting and all have different skills. Um, and that's what we need um, in a society. Um, but what God did is he gave his one and only son to die for our sins. So if we all step back and take a moment, uh, put the mask stuff aside, the politics aside, we're all human. He all died for our sins. Um, Thanksgiving is coming up, and it's a time to, I think, really reflect on what we're grateful for. Um, there's um, some people that don't have families and don't have a lot of things, but we can always find one thing we're thankful for and to also take a look around and see maybe what we could give um, others. So it is a time to be thankful and it is Thanksgiving. So I kind of feel like, you know, let's let's give some. Um, so during the time of communion, just think about the things that you're grateful for. Um, you know, God gave his only son to die for our sins. Um, there is a scripture that came up uh, that I, I really liked and thought was very fitting. So it's John 6:35. Then Jesus declared. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So right there is, um, you know, sometimes there are times, especially on the holidays, it can be sad for some people. Um, there is hope, and I would hope for those that do have things like fa family, friends, a house, um, you know, food and shelter, that they're able to give some of that or to be able just to be kind. I mean, let's just be kind to each other. Um, and, and just really focus on the human beings and the nature versus all of this craziness going on. Um, so I hope you have a great time for communion. Um, I'll go ahead and pray. And then um, I hope you have a, a great worshiping service. Lord, thank you very much uh, for this time that we have. Um, sometimes we just uh, kind of take for granted what we have and just really help us focus on the things that really do matter. And uh, appreciate this time um, together, even though it is virtual, but I uh, do appreciate it. And uh, thank you for loving us for um, who we are. And thank you for giving your one and only son um, so that we can live forever. Amen. Have a good service. to him.
Now, as they're standing there hiding from each other, this giant statue is all of a sudden uh, lifted up above their heads, and, and George Michael and his dad see each other. And when they do, they both begin to lament how each had been lied to recently. George Michael says to his father, it's just so hard to know what the right thing to do is. To which his dad responds, yeah, it's not like there's some list of rules handed down to us from on high. Now that's when the camera pans out and directly above their heads, suspended by a crane that is moving it from the public square, is a giant statue of the Ten Commandments. Here's a, a picture that we pulled off line for this. This is Michael's sister, Lindsay, who orchestrated the removal of the Ten Commandments from the courthouse. Well, this is similar to what we have been learning about in the book of Judges. The people were given rules literally um, less than 90 years before this time of Judges chapter 17 that we're going to be in today, when Moses walked down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. So even though the people knew the rules, and they were really, in the timeline, they were pretty close to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God, they chose not to follow them. Instead, we read over and over in Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now this way of thinking is called relativism, and it teaches that truth is up to the individual to determine. There is no such thing as objective truth. Who are we to say that something is right or wrong for society or for another individual? What's wrong to one person may be perfectly acceptable to someone else. The common motive in a society ruled by relativism is self-interest. And, and we really see this all over the place in a whole lot of social media posts and memes and things like that. And so maybe you've seen some of these in, in the past. Um, this is what relativism looks like kind of today. If it makes you happy, do it. You've probably seen that or heard that. Somebody said it. And sometimes they'll say those things even when you're doing something that, that you as a believer know God wouldn't want you to do. And, and somebody will say, well, but if it makes you happy, it's okay. You should go ahead and do it. The next one we see a lot is this. If I'm not hurting anyone, it's okay. As though as long as I'm hurting myself or, or I'm not intentionally hurting somebody else, I can do whatever I want. Or then there's this one. I like this one. We hear it a lot. I'm speaking my truth. Now, these are all statements of relativism, and they put each individual at the center of their own universe, like it makes me the king of my own little kingdom. The problem is that as some have astutely observed, we are not an island. The drunk driver who sped through the red light, striking my 21-year-old cousin and killing him two weeks before his wedding, believed that his drinking and driving on a suspended license wouldn't affect anybody but himself. If you want to know what a society looks like when everybody buys into the philosophy of relativism, look no further than the last few chapters of the book of Judges. The story of Israel in Judges is a story of our own lives. And, and it proves this, that you can't be faithful to God without following God. 
So we're going to jump into Judges chapter 17 and just look at the first few verses of this chapter as we begin to get a picture of what's going on in the book of Judges towards the end. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke to me, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. Now, at first glance, you might think that Micah's family uh, is a good, wholesome family. After all, Micah fessed up, right? He returned what he had stolen. But we need to look a little deeper. Micah is from the tribe of Ephraim, but that doesn't come in as an issue until verse 5. And so we're going to wait until we get to that verse to talk about that a little more, but just kind of put a pin in that uh, for later. Now his mother, Micah's mother and father, may have been born during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert after God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, meaning his mom probably had seen the presence of God in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites. Micah may have been a young boy when his family crossed the Jordan River on dry ground and marched around Jericho seven times until the walls fell down. So basically what I'm saying is they knew God. Now, while it's good that Micah confessed to stealing the money, we need to break this down a little further. When Micah's mom realized the money was missing, Micah was present with her, but he didn't confess. Then he heard his mother speak a curse on the one who stole the money. Now, she basically asked God to bring harm on the one who stole from her. Perhaps she even got really nasty, like, um, God, please make him lame or kill one of his kids or give him an incurable disease, something like that. I mean, Micah's mom is probably a, a single mom at this point, a, probably a widow because his dad isn't mentioned in the story, which makes this crime of stealing from her even worse. And so she may have really wanted to get revenge on whoever stole the money from her when she uttered this curse. Um, and so she might have been really nasty when she gave it. Now, what this tells us is that Micah's not returning the money because it's the right thing to do. He's returning it because he feared the curse. Now, this was not a moral decision on Micah's part. It was a preservation decision. And this is why he reminds his mother when he talks to her, hey, do you remember the curse that you uttered on the person who stole the money? Like, mom, do you really want those terrible things to happen to me? What about your grandchildren? What about your daughter-in-law? So Micah knew that his mother had lots of money and he wanted some of it for himself, breaking commandment number 10, do not covet. Then he further dishonored his mother by intentionally stealing from her, breaking commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Then he actually stole the money, breaking commandment number eight, do not steal. Then presumably he lied to his mother saying that he didn't know what happened to the money when she first realized it was missing, but before she uttered the curse, right? And so um, Micah is there present with her. She realizes the money is gone. She says, what happened? Somebody took the money. Micah says, I don't know what happened to it. And then she utters this curse and Micah's like, uh-oh, what's going on? Now, lying is not specifically one of the Ten Commandments, but is certainly 
frowned upon by God. And, and actually, commandment number nine says not to bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, by lying to his mother, Micah was implicating somebody else, anybody but him, causing her to question and be suspicious of others who may have had access to her money because, like Micah said, somebody else did it. Well, Micah planned his theft out, and the only reason that he confessed is because he was worried something might happen to him because of his mother's curse. Well, in the next bit of scripture, we find out why Micah felt bold enough to steal from his mother, and that's because, well, she babied him. Let's look at the next few verses. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Well, after Micah confesses, to his, uh, confesses his mother blesses him. Now, this is um, critical to the story because it's the real reason that Micah confessed in the first place. In those days, you couldn't take a curse back once it had been uttered. But you could bless the one who you had cursed, and, and then you kind of render the curse ineffective. So, um, like, it's a wash, right? Micah's mom needed to bless him just to nullify the curse. Now, Micah didn't have the money with him when he initially confessed to stealing it, but um, he, he had it, I don't know, wherever it was that he had put it, but he hadn't brought it back to her yet. And we don't know why he didn't have it with him. Maybe it was a spur-of-the-moment decision on his part to confess. Um, maybe she was talking about the money and she was kind of uh, remembering the curse that she uttered and it kind of freaked him out. And so he's like, hey, look, okay, it was me. I took it. Um, I'll get the money and I'll bring it back to you. But he confessed and then he says, look, I I'm going to bring it to you. And so uh, in that culture, it was like he already had. He already had. But also I wonder if maybe he thought that his mother would just say, ah, don't worry about it, son. Like, you can go ahead and keep it. Maybe that's why he didn't have it with him. And, and I think her next actions might give us a clue. Because instead of any discipline coming on her precious baby, Micah's mother makes three pledges. First, she vows to dedicate the money to God. Now, Moses had already told the people in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, that when you make a vow to God, you had better keep it. So this is a serious thing. The second pledge she makes is that she will use this money she's already dedicated to God, and, and she would use it to make other gods uh, a metal and a wood god that she would then give to um, her son. By the way, she's breaking commandment number one, have no other gods before me, and number two, don't make any idols. Now, the third pledge she makes is to give the idols, once she has them made, to give them to Michael, the thief and the propagator uh, of, the of a false religion. So this is a really strange thing. So in the first three verses of chapter 17, the book of Judges, Micah and his mom are guilty of breaking six of the Ten Commandments, as well as other laws of God. And all of this less than 90 years from Moses receiving God's commands uh, on Mount Sinai. So not only is Micah's mom 
not disciplining her son for stealing from her, but she gives him idols, basically giving him the money, or at least part of it, that he had already stolen. Now, Micah has only pledged to return the money, right? He hasn't actually returned it. And his mother has only made pledges herself, um, saying, this is what I'm going to do once I receive the money back. So let's see what happens next in verses 4 and 5. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver from the 1100, and she gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now when Micah finally brought the money back to his mother, she took 200 pieces of the silver that she had dedicated to God, and she got a, 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 someone who worked in metal and wood to carve a wood idol and to make a metal idol, and then she gave them to her son. Now, she doesn't give all the money to the Lord that she promised. Instead, she helps her son continue to break more of God's laws and commands. So, let's break this verse down a little more. Micah takes the idols from his mom, and he adds them to a shrine that he had already made, and, and he adds more idols to the ones he already has. Um, remember, Micah comes from a wealthy family, right? So Micah's shrine is, is not in a closet in his house, but perhaps more like in a shed or a large room or maybe even another structure outside of the house. It's big enough where family and friends can come and worship all of these different gods along with the one true God of Israel in the same place. Now Micah then goes on to make an ephod. Now an ephod is um, like a vest that goes over an outer garment and only the high priest of Israel was allowed to wear the vest and only during certain times of the year. Now this priestly vest, you can read about it in the book of Exodus, this priestly vest had um, gold buttons on it that had each of the names of the tribes of Israel. There were jewels woven into it. There were colored fabric woven into it. It was a, a beautiful vest that the high priest would wear. But the most important thing about the vest was the pocket that was sewn into it that contained the Urim and the Thummim. Now, these were um, dice-like uh, 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 ornate little colored um, things that looked like dice. And the priest would use them to determine the will of God. So Micah was copying the ephod of the high priest and then using it to signify religious authority of this new religion that he's creating. He then goes on to make one of his sons the priest of this new religion. Now remember I told you the biggest point about Micah being from the tribe of Ephraim wouldn't come into play until verse 5. Well, here it is. Only men from the tribe of Levi were allowed to serve God in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And only Levites, who were direct descendants of Aaron, Moses' older brother, could be priests within the temple. So there were different things that each of these groups of people were supposed to do. But nobody that wasn't a Levite and wasn't from the tribe or from the descendant of Aaron was allowed to be a priest. And, and, and so Micah is just like blowing this up. Micah has just invented his own religion, complete with religious artifacts and his own high priest, 
further violating God's law, and he's invited others to come and, and worship. He's intentionally trying to get other people to sin. He has replaced not only God, but the temple of God and the tabernacle worship, the priestly sect, and made his own false religion equal with God. Now, everything in the first five verses of Judges chapter 17 is a violation of God's law. The disrespect of a parent, theft, the man-made images, the idol worship, the ephod, the false priestly line, even turning his home into a place of worship. All of these were violations of God's law, right? These made Micah and the other Israelites look like all the nations around them. God had ordained worship in one specific place and only at the hands of the Levites and the priests who were descendants from Aaron. And, and so this is what God had said. This is how you worship. Don't make other idols or images. Don't replace me with anything. Nobody from the people except the Levites are able to worship or, or able to serve in the tabernacle in the temple. And, and Micah has just destroyed all of this. But in a society ruled by relativism, what's the problem? So what if they want to worship this way? Who are we to judge what's right and wrong for Micah and his family and, and his friends? Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just coexist? Well, when you remove the truth, you end up with a society of people who treat other people as less than human. Today, one of its forms is the cancel culture. If I don't agree with you about something, I will ghost you and your rights and freedoms and opinions no longer matter because they don't agree with mine. So I can loot your store, I can beat you up, I can ridicule and silence you simply because you don't agree with me. Therefore, I'm justified in what I do. This is my truth. Do you see how relativism, when it soaks into our culture, gives us a platform to be able to say, I can do whatever I want. It's all up to me. I determine what's right and wrong. Well, in the next few chapters, the end of the book of Judges, we witness a complete and total breakdown of society. And, and I think it starts with what happened with Micah and his family. The people of God have fallen victim to a civil war. They've, they've nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. Then they realize that they've, man, we've made a, an error. We've, we've almost um, cut off or killed off an entire tribe of Israel. And so to try and fix their error, they murder and then engage in human trafficking. And they're like, ah, it's no big deal because the end justifies the means. Does any of this sound familiar to what's going on in our culture today? As followers of Jesus, our goal is to look more like Jesus every day and all in our daily lives. And Jesus, the Son of God, said that he didn't come to be served even though he was the king. He came instead to serve and to give us an example as how we're to follow God. Jesus then submitted to his Father and obeyed him even to the point of death. Like the people of Israel, our problem is not, as Michael Bluth says, that we don't have a list of rules handed down from on high. Our problem is that we have those rules, we just choose not to obey them. 
just like the people of Israel were supposed to be followers of God, but in reality didn't follow God, in 2020, we're to be followers of Jesus. And just like it was for Israel, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus if you don't follow Jesus. Jesus didn't just die to be the cure for our sin. He died so that he could rise from the dead to be our king. To claim that Jesus died just to atone for your sin without also recognizing that his sacrifice demands a change in our lifestyle is to send Jesus to the cross for our sin over and over and over again with no desire, no intent in our lives to change the way that we live. Look, Jesus died to be your cure and he rose to be your king. The very last words of the book of Judges are the same as they are in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus said that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him, which means that there is no way around who he is, what he's done, and what he expects. And so look, let me break it down for you. Jesus can't be your savior and not your sovereign. He can't be your rescuer and not your ruler. He can't be your provider and not your prince. He can't be your Messiah and not your monarch. He can't be your escape and not your emperor. He can't be your cure and not your king. And here's the reason. You won't adhere to his rules if you don't have allegiance to his reign. To be a follower of Jesus takes more than just mental assent. It takes physical action and intentionality and continually trying to look more like Jesus every day. Because you can't be faithful to God and not follow God. Jesus must be your king if he's to be your cure. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son to pay the price for our sin so that we don't have to go back to the temple. We don't have to make those sacrifices any longer because your son, Jesus, he paid the price. He was our cure. He delivered us from from the infection of sin that is a cancer in our lives and destroys us. God, forgive us when we accept your cure, but not your king. So many of us, God, as followers, we've, we've, we've come to you and we're like, hey, take care of my sin so that I can have the hope of heaven, but I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not going to obey your rules. Father, when we do that, it's like we're crucifying Jesus all over again. And so would you help us to look more like Jesus every day? Would you help us to not just accept the cure, but to really live as though Jesus is our king, to follow him and to honor him and to, be, to, to pledge our allegiance to him? And, and what that means, God, for us is that we're going to look in your word. We're going to figure out how to live. We're we're not going to forsake 
gathering together, whether that's in person or when we can't, um, being there online, uh, be with other believers and being engaged and, and, and growing in our faith. God, help us to find ways to do that, to, to prove that we're actually following you in our lives. God, it's a difficult thing for us to do. We thank you for the cure. We also ask that you would help us follow you as our king. Would you do that every day in Jesus' name? Amen. Look, history has a way of repeating itself because humanity has never been able to deal with or resist immorality. Jesus came to be our perfect example, to die as our cure for sin and then to rise from the dead as our king. And the only hope that we have of escaping our history is to follow Jesus, both as cure and king.
enjoyed this Without a King series as we've taken a look at the book of Judges. The next couple weeks, we're going to get to hear from our friend Terry Deaver and then from Antoine Mays. Hopefully, if the COVID is over, Andy and I are going to be chilling on the beaches of Florida for our 30th anniversary. But we plan to be back with you and back in the building on December 6th. And so we hope to see you there.